And uh, so let's, today we're going to begin a journey in a brand new book of the Bible for us, at least popping back out of the Old Testament into the New Testament to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll look at the first 17 verses in a message that I have entitled, Called and confirmed. And so with that, let's take our hearts to the Lord. Uh, Father, we just are so uh, honored to be here and uh, to worship you and to study your word and to learn of you. And so we pray today that you would uh, open our understanding that we might comprehend your word, uh, that you would give us ears to hear you. Uh, Lord, it's our desire to honor you. And so to that end, Father, we pray that you would speak uh, and be glorified in this place today in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Anybody here ever found like a perfect church? If you did, you probably knew right then and there that you could never join it because you would ruin it, right? I mean, truth be told, there is no perfect church. Um, and uh, Jonah, if you want to pull me down just a, just a fuzz, that'd be great. Uh, because the church is comprised of people, and people have problems. And, and perhaps the most notoriously problematic church in biblical history was the Corinthian church. You know, some New Testament epistles were written to address majestic theological themes. You know, Romans was like that. Um, Ephesians is like that. Uh, First Corinthians is not like that. First Corinthians was written to deal with and to bring correction to divisions, drunkenness, criticisms, contentions, immorality, self-seeking, love that was lacking. I mean, forest fires were in full effect in the church at Corinth. But the Corinthian church held a special place in the heart of the Apostle Paul. You know, outside of Ephesus, he stayed in Corinth longer than any other place throughout all of his missionary journeys. He stayed there evangelizing the city, establishing the church for a year and a half or 18 months. Now, you should know that Corinth was the capital city of southern Greece, was arguably the most important city uh, in all of Greece. It boasted a population of around 700,000 people in Paul's day, uh, about 460,000 of which were slaves. Now, it was located on this narrow strip of land known as an isthmus uh, that connected the northern uh, section of Greece with the southern part of Greece. And you saw the little map in the buffer, but you can see it uh, down here uh, as well, uh, over here on the purple section by the uh, Ionian Sea, you can see the city of Corinth. Um, because of its location, it was an important trade center, uh, trade going from north or south through Greece would pass through Corinth, uh, the sea around the southern Tip of southern Greece at Achaia or Achaia, however you want to say it, it was so treacherous that rather than go around it, cargo ships would actually port there in Corinth, offload their cargo, have it transported over land to the other side of that isthmus there, or in some cases, if their ship was small enough, 
they would actually dock their ship and have it dragged across rollers the entire four miles rather than travel the 200 miles around the coast because of the treacherous conditions surrounding the land. Now all that to say that there was a lot of overnight, quick couple of day stop off kind of activities that took place in Corinth. It had kind of earned this, I shouldn't say kind of, it had most definitely earned this reputation of a city that had this reckless pursuit of pleasure. Uh, A modern equivalent would be like Las Vegas today. There were temples to uh, Poseidon, to Athena, Apollos, Uh, Apollo, uh, Hermes, Isis, uh, Serapis, Asclepius, they were all there. However, most prominently was the worship of Aphrodite. And her temple was located upon a hill that overlooked the city. It housed a thousand female prostitutes or priestesses that would descend upon the city nightly in order to lure men through uh, to worship through sexual immorality. And whenever the Greeks would put on a play, if there was a drunkard in the play, if there was uh, some immoral character in the play, they were always called the Corinthian. And it was in this dark city that God established a beacon of light by leading Paul to plant a church there on his second missionary journey. Now on his third missionary journey, he was staying in Ephesus when a delegation was sent to him from Corinth with questions concerning problems that had infiltrated the church. And what Paul wrote back is what we have before us now. So let's turn our attention, beginning in the first verse of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now today when we write a letter, we state who it's written to at the beginning, then we write the body of the letter, and then we, at the end, we state who it's from. Well, in the ancient world, they started probably a little more um, wisely, if that's as wisely a word, I don't know, but it is now. Uh, A little more wise would be uh, that they actually stated their name, they let you know who was writing right from the beginning. And then they would uh, write who it was, you know, written to. And so, you know, Paul here, he says, well, he writes, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Now, you might note the words in your Bible if you have, I'm not sure how they print, if it's the same digitally or not. I would presume at least it should be. The words to be are in italics. And what that means is that they were added by the translators in order to bring some clarification. That's the intent. When you see an italicized word, it means it's not there in the original Greek, but the translators add it in order to try and bring clarity. Uh, More literally, Paul states quite simply yet emphatically, Paul, a called apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. It's important that we notice from the very outset of this letter, in fact, the very first words of this letter, that Paul is putting forth his credentials as an apostle. Because although Paul founded this church, he knew them, he spent more time with them than perhaps any other a set of would-be converts throughout his missionary history outside of Ephesus, he 
Here he tells them this called apostle by the will of God because as you read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it becomes apparent that even though he loved them, many of the Christians in Corinth didn't have a whole lot of respect for him and his authority as an apostle. And so from the very beginning, he reminds them of his source of authority, the kind of apostle that he is. He is a called apostle of Jesus Christ. That is, he was not appointed by a committee. He didn't win the popular vote. He didn't assume this position of his own initiative. You know, we get the idea as uh, we read some of Paul's letters that because he wasn't one of the quote-unquote original 12 that uh, some people really held that against him. They didn't really acknowledge him in that same light. You know, you're not one of the 12, Paul. Not one of the original 12. I mean, come on, Paul. It's not like you're Peter or you're James or you're John. Why should I give you that kind of platform, you know, in my life? And Paul says, well, I'll tell you why. Because I'm a called apostle of Jesus Christ just the same. I haven't been appointed by the other apostles. I've been called of God. Notice, called of Jesus Christ through the will of God. The idea is, I'm not an apostle by the will of man, but by the will of God. Now, if you're not familiar with Paul's story, I would encourage you strongly. You want to read the book of Acts to discover it. It's fascinating. You know, Paul's conversion. He wasn't, it's not like he had already become part of the church. He had been saved. Now there he is. He's jockeying for position within the church. He's seeking some kind of power or platform. No, the opposite was true. He was seeking to persecute and eradicate the church from the face of the earth. But when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus and called him to be a witness Everything instantly and radically changed eternally for him. And he went from being the foremost persecutor of the church to the foremost preacher of the gospel. But that's what Jesus does, isn't it? He confronts us, he calls us, and he changes our lives forever. Paul was a called apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle, meaning this special ambassador, this sent one, this representative of Jesus Christ to the world and to the church. And Sosthenes, our brother. Now it would seem that this is more than likely the same Sosthenes mentioned in Acts chapter 18, verse 17. You might want to read Acts chapter 18 in conjunction uh, with 1 Corinthians. It's when it's all about his time there in Corinth, and when Paul came to Corinth, he began initially, as he was his routine, preaching in the synagogue. Now, the ruler of the synagogue was a man by the name of Crispus. The short of the story is this. Crispus gave his life to Christ. He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and through Paul's preaching, he was saved. But because he came to believe on the Lord, he was fired from or perhaps he quit his job as the ruler of the synagogue. His replacement was a man by the name of Sosthenes. 
Now, ultimately, Sosthenes had Paul brought before the Roman magistrate. There was a new Roman magistrate in town, and they were quick to bring Paul to him and accuse him of persuading the people to uh, worship God contrary, you see, to the law of Moses. Well, the Roman magistrate didn't really want anything to do with settling a religious dispute. It had nothing to do with Roman law, so he dismisses the case. And so the pagan Greeks being fed up with the problematic Jews took uh, Sosthenes and beat him right there in front of the judgment seat and the Roman magistrate, he ignored the whole scene. And so flash forward, by the way, when I say problematic Jews, that's not anti-Semite, that's not not my opinion, that was their opinion, Uh, and they took that as an excuse to beat him, okay? Flash forward a couple of years, and now we find Sosthenes saved and serving alongside Paul the Apostle, and we say, wait, 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 what? You know, what has happened here? But the, the funny thing, by funny I mean annoying, is that Luke doesn't record for us the story. And so we have to wait and see how he went from persecuting Paul to being saved and serving alongside Paul when we see him and can ask him face to face there in heaven. You know, you're gonna gonna pull up beside Sosthenes and be like, hey man, you pray tell, you you, you gotta give me the story. What happened there? But the takeaway is this. Oftentimes, it's people who are the most vehemently opposed to you who are the most convicted by the Spirit and the closest to conversion. Once they've been, let's say, beat up by the world, they'll come around and they'll seek you out. He says, to the church of God, verse two, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So who's the letter from? It's from Paul, a called apostle, an ambassador of Jesus Christ, Who is it to? The church of God at Corinth. Now the main thing we want to recognize in that statement is that the church doesn't belong to man. It belongs to God. It's the church of God. He's the one who purchased it, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, with his own blood. As a believer, you've been bought at a price, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We're not our own, we are his. Therefore, we're to glorify God both in our body and our spirit, which belong to him. It's the church of God, but it's at Corinth. And so we're beginning to see this contrast come into focus for us. Something good, something holy, the church of God, something pure at Corinth, someplace bad. Someplace defiled, someplace dark, spiritually speaking. And I point this out because it helps us understand the tension between the city and the church, which then helps us understand the letter of 1 Corinthians. And at the end of the day, the question is this Is the church influencing the city 
or is the city influencing the church, okay? And to make a quick application, it's the same question that confronts you and me today. Are we influencing the world around us or is the world around us influencing us, right? I mean, think about that. Are you affecting the world around you or is the world around you infecting you? Is your light so shining or is it being snuffed out? You know, as time goes by, do you find yourself drawing nearer to God or drifting away from God? Think about that. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, so the church belongs to God, it's in Christ Jesus. And this is what's critical for you and me, guys. And another takeaway we get from 1 Corinthians, because if you'll notice, as much as Paul is a called apostle, he says that they are called saints. Now, he's not calling them saints like, how you doing, saints? It's not like that, but that they've been called. God's calling upon their lives has caused them to be saints. Now, when we, you and me, when we read of all the problems, all the precarious predicaments that they find themselves in, we might be prone to wonder if they're even saved. Paul says, not only saved, saints. How is that possible? Well, because they're in Christ Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what it means to be a Christian. Let me put it this way. For them, being at Corinth, that's really not that important, right? For you and me, being at Calvary Chapel of Joplin isn't altogether entirely essential. But what's absolutely imperative is that we're in Christ Jesus. Are you following me? Here's the point. Being a saint, uh, set apart, you know, to God in holiness has zero to do with what I do. It has everything to do with what Christ has done. Are you following me? Now, having said that, we should clarify that if we're in Christ, there's not gonna be this sense of freedom to sin, okay? But rather, a proper outworking of grace in our lives is a freedom from sin. Are you with me? So, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Yes, Jesus said this, but not free to sin. No, no, free from sin. And we'll see that work more and more its way to the surface as we make our way through this letter. Paul's gonna make clear throughout this epistle that a true understanding of grace, of what it means to be in Christ, will be made manifest by Christ-like character being developed in our lives, okay? Because as it pertains to our, our Bible word of the day, sanctification, you're sanctified, you're saints, you're set apart, right? What that means is, is you're set apart entirely, exclusively for a purpose, right? But there's more than one dynamic to sanctification. There is what we call a positional sanctification and what we call a practical sanctification, Positional sanctification 
is what you receive the moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? There's this transaction that takes place whereby Jesus removes from us the ramifications of our sin and replaces it with all the benefits of his righteousness. He imputes, that's another kind of Bible word, he imputes or accredits you with his righteousness. You are now sanctified before God. You have a position before God that is absolutely perfect. It is sinless being in Christ Jesus. You are robed in his righteousness. When God looks at you, he sees his son, right? You are righteous. You are sanctified. You are sinless positionally in the sight of God. However, on the practical side, well, we still have a sin nature that we war against, don't we? that wars against the spirit. We're not sinless, practically speaking. But as we grow, we're learning to sin less and less. So recognize that in Christ, we're set apart. Again, sanctified from the world, set apart from the world to God. Our time, our talents, our treasures, Everything that we are is his. We're set apart to him. As is true, notice, for all, he says, who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, biblically speaking, I know that there, you know, Roman Catholicism would have you, uh, you know, believe that you have to go, you know, do so many things and people have to be able to, after you die, to pray to you and, af- and, if, and if you answer their prayers, if what you pray happens, and then you become, you're like inducted in the Saints Hall of Fame, you become a saint, right? That's not biblical. Biblically speaking, you're either a saint or you ain't. There's no in-between, right? You're either in Christ Jesus or you're not. And so what Paul is laying out for them, he says, to all who in every place, right? So it's to the church of God at Corinth, uh, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, that's you. If you're in Christ, you are a called saint, and then also with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So what he's teaching them, he wants to teach you and me. Are you with me? Okay, verse four. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, we love the fact that even though Paul's gonna spend the majority of this letter rebuking sin. I mean, that's, what, that's kind of what's happening here is he's, he's introducing himself, reminding them of his authority, and ultimately he's going to bring into focus for us the things that he has to deal with specifically. But 
before he begins the correction, he finds it first within his heart to not rebuke them, but to rejoice over them, to give thanks for them before God. And we love that pattern that Paul establishes. Commendation before confrontation before exhortation. He points out the positive before shedding light on the negative. And it's important, you guys, when confronting someone with a sin situation that they know that you love them, you're for them, you're grateful for the work of God in them. You're not there just to tear into them, you're not there to dismantle them or somehow diminish them and then just kind of leave them beaten and bruised. But that you love them. Paul gives God thanks for a number of things. If you notice, first of all, if you're a, a note taker or your underliner or whatever, he thanks God for the grace. He says, for the grace of God, which was given to them by, or again, in Christ Jesus. Guys, every good thing that enters the equation of our lives is a result of the grace of God toward us. Uh, both materially and spiritually. We're saved by grace. We grow by grace. We're strengthened by grace. Our lives become a continual testimony of the sufficiency of the grace of God, yes? And Paul, you know, he's here and he's... he's uh, preparing to share with him, you know, you can't really give God thanks for it. I thank, I thank God for the righteous lives you're living. He can't do that. You know, I, I thank God for the fact that your faith is so incredibly evident. Can't say that. But God's grace is on display for all to see. And so Paul magnifies God's grace in them and says, you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge, which is again an overflow of God's grace, right? When he speaks of utterance and knowledge, he's referring here, he's referencing the spiritual gifts. He's talking tongues, he's talking prophecy, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, interpretation of tongues and all, and we're gonna get into all that as this book uh, progresses. But what I wanna highlight is the phrase, enriched in everything by him, or in him. Guys, I just want to go on record stating that Jesus enriches your life in every way. Enriched in everything by him. My marriage is enriched by Christ. My role and responsibilities as a father enriched by Christ. Friendships enriched in Christ. Fellowship enriched by Christ. My attitude toward work is enriched by Christ. My understanding about serving at church or elsewhere enriched by Christ. Jesus elevates every aspect of our lives. Our study of the word of God is enriched by Christ. And Paul says, you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So for all their shortcomings, the work of God's grace is still on display in their lives. Spiritual gifts, a proclamation of Jesus, and an expectant anticipation of his return. Whatever problems they had, we have to admit there's some pretty impressive strong points. And you know, we may want to pride ourselves on not having these people's problems, the question is, do we have their positives? 
You know, are the gifts of the Spirit at work among us? Uh, Do we speak to people around us about Jesus? Are we excited for the return of Jesus? Guys, these these were real things in their midst. Now again, we say these things aren't really to their credit. It's the work of God's grace among them. Nevertheless, they're great things to have credited to them. Now let's also see this. He says that you come short, right? In no, you're enriched in everything, in all utterance, in all knowledge. These spiritual gifts were flowing in this fellowship. But we know, right? We've, we've, we've kind of read the book. We know the story of how carnal they were as Christians, at least at this point in their history. And so there's there's kind of a counterintuitive thing that we need to think about here. Spiritual gifts are flowing, yet the Christians are carnal. What's the point? That spiritual gifts at work in me or through me, guys, is no indication of my personal spiritual maturity. Okay? Think about that. How often we equate a word of wisdom or knowledge. Perhaps, you know, God grants healing through the laying on of hands and we think, my, that person must really be holy. They must really be mature spiritually in order to be used of God in that capacity. It's faulty logic. The gifts of God magnify not how great we are, but how gracious he is. Are you with me? Now, suffice it to say for now, because we'll get into it as the book progresses, that it's entirely possible to be gifted by God, yet virtually fruitless and totally unpleasing to God. Okay? But even so, we note Paul's confidence that God will take care of their weaknesses. He will strengthen them, that is, confirm them, verse 8, till the end making them blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can Paul rest in such confidence concerning a people riddled with so many problems? The answer is in verse 9, underline it, highlight it, make note of it. God is faithful. God has called them. Therefore, God will confirm them. That is, unconditionally establish them, is what that means. What a great word of encouragement for us today. Maybe that's a word for someone here today. You need to be reminded, you need to remember God is faithful. Man isn't always faithful. You know, God is faithful. And if he called you, he'll confirm you. Again, the key in your making it, in my making it, ultimately, eternally, our, our, our making it to the finish line, you see, isn't found in my greatness. It's found in God's faithfulness. God's graciousness. When Asaph uttered the words of Psalm 73, he said, I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. 
He was sober to the fact of who he was as opposed to whom God is. I, he said, am so foolish, so often driven by the dictates of my flesh, like a beast before you. But you, God, you got a grip on me. You see that? You hold me by my right hand. It's like, there you are. You're crossing the road with your little toddler and, you know, uh, and the cars are going back and forth. And what happens if they let go of your hand? Nothing, because you got to hold them, right? You're hanging on to them. You're going to keep them. And that's what we have here. He says, you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. It's not because of what I've done. It's because of who you, God, are, faithful to your word, faithful to your promises. To the Philippians, Paul put it like this. He said, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, salvation, guys, has nothing to do. I just, I keep saying it is it's not about how great I am it's about how gracious how faithful God is and in the end as we'll see ultimately as we journey through this letter all glory and all honor and all praise will go to God alone it's not going to be like wow I really worked hard to get here God won't share his glory with you or me It'll all be about his work through his son to the glory of his name. Now I plead with you, verse 10, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Guys, the more we come to know the Apostle Paul, the more impressed with him we become. (laughs) I mean, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. What am I saying? He doesn't need to plead with anybody. You understand that? He can command with all the authority of Jesus himself. But he doesn't do that. Love compels him to plead, to beg the believers to be unified. By the way, Paul references Jesus Christ 11 times in the first 10 verses of his letter. The centrality of Christ in the resolve of every issue becomes unmistakably evident. But he says, listen, I'm begging you. Speak the same things. Have the same mind. No divisions, no tearings, no, no renderings or ripping apart of the body of Christ. The plea, you guys, isn't for an elimination of diversity, but a harmony in the body, you see. Rather than emphasizing their own opinions, that they share the mind of Christ. And he says in verse 11, for it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, I say this. In other words, what that's, a, that's kind of the ancient way of saying is what I mean by that is this, okay? That each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Listen, he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
couple of, of quick things here, just real quick. I love the fact, back in verse 11, that he brings Chloe to the forefront with regard to legitimizing the problems. Listen, this is a big deal. If you're, not go- if you're gonna make an accusation, okay, or bring me some sort of incriminating information against someone else, but not allow me to use your name when I look into it, I'm probably not gonna pursue it. Okay? There was contention. There was quarreling among them. Paul says, what I mean by that, and then he begins to detail how the Christians at Corinth began to uh, divide against one another by identifying themselves with the various preachers and teachers that had passed through the area. And some were like, hey, you know what? Paul's the one who founded the church. I'm with him. And others were, well, you know, he's not really that impressive when he preaches. Um, you know, he's not a wordsmith, but I love the appeal, I love the eloquence, I love the ability of Apollo to keep my attention fully from the moment he starts till he finishes, just he waxes so eloquently, you know, he's my guy. Others were like, well, Peter was the one who Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom to, he was the original leader, he's the, you know, evangelist extraordinaire, man, he's the guy, you know, and then of course there was the most spiritual of all, We don't follow any man. You know, we follow no footsteps but those of Jesus himself, you know. Completely, essentially freeing themselves of any responsibility or accountability to man, even though God established such order. But they were were far too spiritual for any of that, you see. And honestly, you guys, it's not that they were saying those men, Paul, Apollos, Peter, whatever, were so great but that they were so great for following that guy, you see? And listen, it's not that it's wrong to make distinctions or, you know, between churches or styles of preaching or pastors or whatever the case. One man's approach or character or personality isn't going to appeal to everyone. That's that's just the way it is, you know? And so God has called all kinds of different people in different places and different personalities, and that's great. The problem is when I begin to elevate the man rather than receiving the message, right, that he brings. We're all on the same team. You know, is Christ divided? No. Was your preacher crucified for your sins? No. So why elevate the man beyond the simple standing? That's one thing that carpet won't do, isn't it? Uh, Why elevate the man beyond the simple standing that God has given him? It's Jesus Christ whom we exalt, whom we worship, whom we glorify. You weren't baptized in anyone else's name. And so look at at verse 14. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas besides He says, I I don't know whether I uh, baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, unless the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So evidently, some were anchoring themselves to the fact that Paul himself, you know, Paul the apostle baptized me as though that validated something more godly uh, for them. And again, that's a respecter of persons kind of a thing. Uh, when I, I was in, um, 
Israel a number of years ago. And, uh, you know, I didn't go leading the trip or anything. I was just along for the trip. And, but the pastor who was leading the trip knew, knew that I was a pastor. And so he, you know, had me share a time or two. And that was, that was fine and, and, and well. And then um, they were going to have baptisms in the, uh, uh, the Sea of Galilee because the Jordan River was too low and there was things going on. So they, but, you know, they tried to make everybody feel better because the Jordan River feeds into the Galilee. You know, the Lake of the Sea of Galilee feeds the Jordan, whatever. And so you're still, you're still finding the same, you know. Um, and he was like, you know, Pastor Jeff, why don't you, you know, like, I'll take a line and you take a line. And I was like, you know, Dave, it was, uh, his name was David. Uh, I said, um, how about we don't do that? Because the truth is, is these people are, are people from your fellowship. They're just, they're going to want to be baptized by their pastor. He's like, oh no, that's ridiculous. I was like, Okay. So he's like, you know, whoever wants to be baptized, I'm going to be here. Pastor Jeff's going to be here. And like, you know, his line just, bloop, 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 bloop. and I'm standing there. <laughs> I mean, like nobody. I'm like, oh, I told you, man, it was going to be like this. So we're out there. But finally, you know, like one of his assistants comes over. And, uh, and so like one like couple that felt sorry for us, you know, you could just... <laughs> kind of comes over and you know we pray for him we baptize him and then I just like I make my way out of the water sit down and enjoy the show you know but it's that kind of thing where it's like no man we want our guy to you know and it's it's, it's natural but evidently these people were kind of anchoring themselves in something a little more godly because the apostle you see had baptized them and Paul says, hey, you know what? I thank God I didn't baptize anyone other than just these few guys. And to be honest, if you're out there saying I baptized you and I did baptize you, I don't even remember baptizing you, you know? And, and by the way, if this section of scripture doesn't serve as some sort of proof text that baptism is not necessary for salvation, you know, I just, I don't know what does. I mean, it would be nothing short of blasphemy for Paul to thank God that he didn't baptize people if you couldn't be saved apart from baptism. And guys, it's not that that baptism isn't important. It's simply that it's not essential to salvation. It's the outward demonstration or declaration of the inward transformation of my heart. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. By the way, we're almost finished, Abby. I don't know where you're at if you want to make your way up here. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not, he says, with the wisdom you know, of words. Not with clever speaking. Not trying to dazzle people or wow them with my words. Show them how smart I am by, you know, using words they need a dictionary to understand. Why? He says, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Wow, think about that. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But I can neutralize its impact. Think about that. I can detract from the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified by drawing everyone's attention to myself. You know, keeping your focus on my words rather than his work. So important. Guys, the goal is never to win or to wow the mind, but to change the heart. And I can't do that. 
Faith comes by hearing by, and hearing by the word of God. And so the centrality of Christ is such a key. And so just kind of an introductory look into this book, but may Jesus be magnified and may God be glorified both in our lives personally, but then also in our gathering collectively. Amen? Amen. Father, as we launch now into this letter uh, that we call 1 Corinthians, I pray, Lord, that you would quicken us, that you would challenge us and change us. God, that we repent of, of our own carnality, that we would grow in maturity and model unity for the glory of your name. And having called us, Lord, we trust you to confirm us to the end. And God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we give you praise. And I would just encourage you guys that you're here and you're kind of in this prayer posture. Salvation can be yours. If you don't know the Lord, if you've never uh, given your heart to the Lord, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and trust in Him today. If God is calling you, I encourage you, be reconciled today through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. God loves you. Jesus has laid down His life for you. And you can have life in him. He'll take your sin. He'll give you his righteousness. So I just want to give you a second to think about that. And to ready your heart to respond to that if the Lord is dealing with you in that capacity. I don't know. Maybe everybody here knows the Lord and you love the Lord. And I mean, I think that's wonderful. Maybe not. You know, maybe... Maybe you're here and, and you've not given your life to Christ. You think you'll have time, you'll do it later, you'll, you'll get there when you're a little older, whatever. That's, that's that whole ploy we talk about of the enemy where it's, you know, the, the most effective lie that he has isn't that there's no heaven or that there's no hell or that there's no God or whatever, it's that there's no hurry. You've got time. But we don't, we don't know. And so if you need the Lord to come into your heart and forgive you your sin, I just want to pray for you. I'm just going to ask you to just show me who you are. You can raise your hand right where you're at and uh, receive the Lord right here and now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that you? If so, then just show me. Now's your moment to call upon the Lord and be saved.